I mentioned that Minnesota and New Mexico this year passed two of the best omnibus pro-voter policies I've ever seen. Not only did both add secure automatic voter registration, they restored rights to returning citizens. They both made improvements to their state's vote-by-mail system. They both made sure that election administrators had what they needed to sort of provide these gold standard elections. Those are a caliber of policymaking in the states that you weren't seeing a few years ago. Hello. This is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Sam Oliker Friedland, is the executive director of the Institute for Responsive Government. He was previously chief counsel at the Center for Secure and Modern Elections, and before that, a trial attorney in the voting rights section of the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. The Institute for Responsive Government provides research and analysis in key areas like election policy to create a more user-friendly government. Sam's work is relevant as we approach another close national election with laws in flux and an ex-president running on election denial. If you're interested in the work going on in this area, you should definitely listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Sam Oliker Friedland of the Institute of Responsive Government. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Sam, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Sam Oliker Friedland. I lead the Institute for Responsive Government, and I uh, live in Chicago, Illinois. I'm originally a Midwesterner, grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, went out east for school and sort of stayed in D.C. for a while. And I'm very excited to have sort of moved back to the Midwest about a year ago when we founded Responsive Government. Before this job, I was at Center for Secure Modern Elections, running the legal and policy team as we sort of build, funded, and executed pro-voter policy campaigns across the country. And before that, I was a litigator. I was at the Department of Justice Voting Rights Section. We enforced the Voting Rights Act and the National Voter Registration Act and all the sort of more, more minor federal statutes that are there to sort of protect voting rights across the country. Although I would say that now I am a proud ex-litigator. I'm sort of excited to move from litigation to policy and lobbying and and sort of more academic work that we get to do at Responsive Government. Before law school, I worked at the New Organizing Institute working on sort of progressive trainings, particularly progressive data and progressive data around election administration. Helped found the Organizer's Guide to Election Administration there and worked on some other programs like the Voting Information Project and became very deeply addicted to voting policy and deeply addicted to, to our strange system of administering elections early on in my career when I was at NOI. And actually back in college when I, I worked on a project called Go Vote Absentee, where we 
we started to try and centralize absentee voting information from the 8,000 jurisdictions that run their own absentee ballot systems across the country. I like to say that I'm a lawyer with basically no, no transferable legal skills. If you need help with your voter registration, let me know if you get arrested or have some problems with your taxes. I can't help you there. I have a fairly narrow specialty, although I love it very much. Well, it seems like a really interesting career and has put you in what seems like a cool place. What kind of family do you have? Where did you get this interest in politics from originally? So my hyphenated last name comes from having two sociology professor parents grew up in in Wisconsin. My mom taught at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. My dad was at Madison. And they were both fairly politically active early on. I caught the political bug in Wisconsin um, early on. I would like to say that it was a governor's race or a Senate race, but really there was a father of a friend of mine who ran for judge whose last name was Schmeckpepper. And frankly, I, I just love that name. And so I told my parents that they asked me who I was supporting in the election. And I told them that I was supporting Schmeckpepper for judge. Annie, if you're listening to this, I don't think I ever told you that story. That sort of bug bit me early on. Loved going out canvassing and especially loved getting to go vote with my parents. I grew up Jewish, but but grew up culturally Lutheran in Wisconsin and and explained to a lot of my Western colleagues how much we really love in-person voting in Wisconsin and really sort of have those like great, great, great early memories of in-person voting. That's a really high density of sociology in a household. <laughs> Did their interest in that discipline shape you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. My mom does gender and family sociology. My dad does sociology of communications. I will say that I was a fairly typical bratty teenager and was like very resistant to the idea that my parents might have anything to contribute that I might find interesting. And so there was a frustrating to me path of learning that they actually did work that reflected on the work that I wanted to do and that they were probably teaching me a lot, which which now in my late 30s, I can finally have the maturity to thank them for that. Thanks, mom and dad. Did you run into Paul Soglin, who was mayor of Madison on and off for many years? I, I know the name. He is definitely a legend in Wisconsin political circles. I was very much raised as a Milwaukeean. So whenever I tell someone I'm from Wisconsin, they say, oh my gosh, I love Madison. And my parents live there now. I sort of, when I go home, quote, I go to Madison, but I am a Milwaukee partisan through and through. And so I, if someone brings up Paul Soglin, I will try to turn the conversation to the early socialist mayors of Milwaukee, how what I might note is the sort of largest city in Wisconsin has has played an outside role in, I think, you know, the labor movement and developing the Wisconsin, the progressive Wisconsin political tradition that I think we often give Madison credit for, although for the colleagues and friends and family who are in Madison, I very much love Madison, too. Well, I, I remember reading uh, Robert Follett's autobiography when I was a young guy, and that was one of the many political biographies that, you know, I guess, shaped me. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think Wisconsin has, during a time of unbelievable sort of painful polarization and politics that are just sort of like bad these days in a way that was not true at any point else in my career, like I, I still think Wisconsin provides a model for slightly less polarized politics. If you look at voting patterns in Wisconsin, there's the same sort of educational polarization that you see everywhere else happening, but it's like a little slower and you have like a little bit sort of more geographically even distribution of votes for both parties in Wisconsin. And that's reflected in their rural tradition of education. Um, 
a rural tradition of sort of dairy farmers living in cities and living in communities and building sort of political communities and social communities that like had to take care of each other. As we found it Institute for Responsive Government, it has become more and more clear to us that like the the antidote, I think, to polarization, the antidote to the politics we're seeing today is for government to actually effectively take care of people. I love that there's not just one big flagship university in Madison. There are campuses in, you know, in Eau Claire and La Crosse and across the state that serve everyone. I think that's a really powerful model for the 2020s when a lot of people don't feel like government is taking care of them on sort of both sides of the aisle. Well, what do you think of trying to impeach a Supreme Court justice in the state before they even take office? I think that is a a reflection of how polarized like elected officials have become in that state. When I say that Wisconsin in some ways seems to me to be less polarized than other states, that is not reflected in the legislature. It would be one thing to disagree with her legal decisions. You can sort of file your best brief. When the Wisconsin Supreme Court had four conservatives and three liberals, um, it was not predictably conservative. It was not, they were not giving 100% sort of wins to the Republicans in court because folks were convincing swing votes with their legal arguments. And there are still votes that can be convinced with legal arguments. And I wish the legislature was spending more time putting together the legal arguments for what they believe rather than just trying to sort of strip someone who literally just got elected by a pretty healthy majority of Wisconsinites from their power before they've even just based on sort of a premonition that this that Justice Protasiewicz is going to rule the wrong, wrong way on a case that they care about. So let me go back into your biography a bit, because some people who listen to this are, you know, college age, and it's hard for them always to conceive of a non-standard career. Like you've majored in linguistics, I read, which, <laughs> yeah. which you know, is a super interesting subject, but not one that a lot of kids think, okay, if I'm going to go work in a particular, you know, as a doctor or a lawyer, that that's the automatic path. What, why did you choose that? And, and did that matter down the road? Yeah, I, I'm going to answer both the question you asked and a slightly different question that I think will be more useful. The, the reason that I chose it was that I was sort of like a dumb 18 year old and I went to a class and I said, that was fun. So I'm going to major in it without really putting any of the thought in that I should have thought about how that would affect my career. I'm going to answer the question as uh, how, how was that helpful in my career? Or like what thought process should I have gone through when, when choosing a major? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think the topic matters much. So candidly, like I, you know, I, I, I keep trying to sort of like develop a theory. I, I fell in love with Grice's conver- theory of conversational implicatures. And I keep trying to come up with a theory of how that actually sort of like influences the way we talk to each other in politics or influences the way judges should be making decisions. And I haven't quite hit on that yet. So I have not like figured out exactly how linguistics and my study of linguistics helps me substantively. But what I will say that linguistics did, this was an accident. I didn't I was not smart enough at 18 to pick a major on this basis, but like it taught me how to think and it taught me particularly what linguistics does is it shows you how to look at a bunch of data and unlike other sciences, you don't actually run that data through very particular processes. Your first filter is your intuition. So like when I see a text from a language and I need to figure out how the sound system of that language works, my first filter is like what I know, sort of like reading it a few times 
developing a theory. Then I go through and very scientifically make sure that that intuition I developed is correct, but that the coming up with an intuition part is really important. And I think like the folks I know that are best at politics, the lawyers that I know are that are best at law, all have really strong intuitions. And I don't know if I have like an inherently strong intuition, but I think I got taught to develop scientifically verifiable intuitions for four years. And I think that was like really helpful. My ex-partner who I went to college with studied comparative literature. That's another discipline that teaches you a way of like examining a bunch of data and like thinking about it and organizing your head that was really different than anything else I'd ever seen. And like that would have been like another great choice and sort of the teach you how to think. I think that some of the more traditional majors that lead people into careers in public service or careers in law or careers in politics teach you a lot of the substance you need to know. But maybe I, I think some of the sort of swerves can actually like teach you how to glean the right thing out of a bunch of data. I want to get a, a, one question in about New Organizing Institute because it comes up a lot in my conversations with people who had careers in this field. It was an organization that was important for what it did for a time and went away and I think is missed by people who understand that. But with the perspective of time, what's your take on what NOI did and what we may have lost by it going away? Or is it okay? Looking back at that and your time there, which you you did some interesting things that kind of set you on a path uh, where you are now. How do you see it? Yeah, I think like the the training piece is important and there's a lot of organizations that do training now and a lot of those folks actually came out of NOI but i still think that like no one did training like the NOI boot camps i was working with a bunch of organizers but i had never been a professional organizer except for one summer at in 2006 with Fair Wisconsin, the anti-gay merit ballot initiative campaign, I was there as the nerd. I was there as the sort of like, I was working on data, I was working on election administration. I'm someone who has worked in politics and for whom going door to door gives me hives and I will do it for people that I love. But like, I know people who thrive on that. Like, I never thrived, <laughs> frankly. But it was so cool to have the opportunity to work with people that did and to sort of watch them train their colleagues and build that community. This is going to make me sound like a cranky old person, which to be clear, I am. But the more I use social media in my life, um, the less I think I take time to have just like unstructured creative time with friends and people I think are smart in person. The ability to have a bunch of introverts and extroverts in a room together and say, just like, come up with like a cool thing to do was a space that NOI provided. The effect of it that I see in the law and policy space generally is a reminder of like knowing your audience. So especially as someone doing election administration work, doing voting work, the audience at NOI was organizers. It was the new organizing institute. It was not other lawyers. It was not policymakers. I'm so glad I got to do work before I went to law school. I can't put in enough of a plug for working for a little bit first. I was able to go into law school understanding that there were people who needed my work that were not judges, that were not lawyers, that were not my colleagues in particular. And that if we weren't sort of carefully shaping our work product for the needs of like real people on the ground, we are not doing our job right. And that is something that probably the core principle that motivates our legal work and our policy work at Responsive Government. 
there are different audiences. There's organizers, there's government officials, there's IT folks in and out of government. There are professionals in other fields who like need our work. It's not always about sort of coming up with the best citable answer. It's about giving an answer that lets someone move forward or gives them actionable information about how they can accomplish something they want to accomplish. The Voting Information Project was a great example of that, where it was like very clear that that folks on the ground needed information about where polling places were because they needed to track people to polling places. That's incredibly simple that before VIP was founded, that information wasn't centralized anywhere. That was a failure of the voting policy and data space before that. And that was like an example of of what I see as the really important work of just correctly identifying needs and then filling them in a simple, accurate way. Another alumni group that I've noticed in the progressive ecosystem is Yale Law grads, trained lawyers who end up running organizations instead of maybe necessarily being lawyers. Sometimes they, they're legal organizations. How did that shape you? How did the three years there shape you? Why did you choose law school and, and how was that in directing your trajectory? So the how I chose law school was about the same as how I chose my linguistics major, which is that like, I don't know, I really liked law and order when I was younger. And so I decided I wanted to be a lawyer and never really sort of questioned that decision. I absolutely feel like it was the right move for me. I talk to people sometimes who are thinking about becoming lawyers and my reaction is, wow, you're being so thoughtful and considering all of the sort of possibilities here in a way that I never did. There was a joke at NOI that that we existed to sort of keep smart policy folks from going to law school. And so I was just sort of a failure of that goal. <laughs> I was attracted to Yale for the exactly what you said of the reputation is of folks who sort of go into things other than sort of core legal practice. It was the academic breeding ground. I was pretty sure that I didn't want to be an academic. One thing that from talking to friends, no professional school ever teaches you, or at least like law doesn't, no one I know who's gone to medical school has gone through this. No one who's gotten an MBA I know has like talked about this at school is like, you need to decide what you want your day-to-day to be like. Not like, are you working on immigration law or are you working on tax law? But do you want to be in meetings back to back or do you want to be like writing a document? Do you want to be talking to the public or do you want to be like, talking to small groups of people. Do you like longer term projects or do you like shorter term projects? I learned that I don't like giving sort of perfect considered answers over a long period of time. I would rather give a very good quick answer. That's a lot of the value that I bring to my jobs and have brought to my jobs. It was like the quick triage. I can triage something better than a lot of people. You actually want someone else to write you a memo over the course of a couple of weeks. That same sort of impulse of mine made me pretty sure that I didn't want to go into academia. I would never have written my dissertation. I was in a PhD program. I left it yep, uh, yep. short of the dissertation and started a company. The feedback from the world seemed a little more fitting to me. Uh-huh. Yep. 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 And it's just like, you know, and I know academics who are really good at like taking feedback from the world and doing really practical work. And what they have in common is that they are able to sit there. They walk to their desk at 9 a.m. and they write until 5 p.m. That is not me. <laughs> and I, I knew that wasn't going to be me. But I got to Yale and I discovered that like a lot of a lot of the non-practice folks were pretty clearly destined for academia. And it was so fun to have those folks as friends. And some of my best friends are now academics and like great, like what a like what a cool situation to get to like talk to them about theory all day and then not have to write anything yourself. It was an interesting place. There was a lot I didn't like about law school, and there was a lot I particularly didn't like about Yale. 
What was the biggest challenge for you? So Yale doesn't have grades in a traditional sense. Like there you get a pass, a high pass, or a low pass. And I got an okay mix of those. No one really got low passes in anything. So it was sort of a, you got a extra credit or regular credit. And the pass is, you know, a bunch of high performing people who consider not getting the top grade to be the worst thing that could ever happen to them. And so like, I, I like to tell every burgeoning lawyer that I got a distinct pass in election law from uh, Justin Levitt, who's at Loyola now, was guest teaching election law. And I decided that I didn't need to learn about campaign finance law because I wasn't interested in that. And it turns out I learned a lesson. You're actually not really able to just ignore half the material in a class and succeed if you're not interested in half that material. You sort of got a mix of grades that was not that reflective generally of the work you did. Frankly, a sort of random distribution. This led that like group of type A people to be so anxious about sort of other means of getting a gold star that it was one of the more sort of high anxiety spaces I've ever been in, especially around clerkships, right? Internship with a judge basically after you finish law school that sort of a measuring stick of how big you were. Exactly. Exactly. And did you get the most prestigious judge at the DC circuit or did you get a district judge in somewhere less prestigious and people very much measured each other and, and put an unbelievable amount of effort into positioning themselves for the right one. And that was like participating in the law journal or like doing a prestigious research assistantship. And I decided pretty early on that I didn't really want to clerk. There's a theme here and maybe not the best decision making I'd ever done, but ended up being the right decision. And that took so much of the pressure off. So I sort of got to just like enjoy this three years with like smart people and smart professors without a lot of the anxiety. And then I ended up getting what's called an honors position. You apply for a special position that lets you go straight to a Department of Justice trial attorney job out of law school, which is its own sort of special process. And it seems to me that Department of Justice Civil Rights Division is about as prestigious a place as one could go to for people who care about that sort of thing in the country. Yeah, I I think that's right. I I knew I wanted to do voting. And frankly, you know, I was not particularly enamored with many of the voting legal nonprofits around that time. And I thought the Department of Justice would be a particularly good place to do that work. I also went to Yale Law School. So like, woohoo, it's something prestigious. That's also great. How did the Justice Department feel during Obama versus during Trump? Was there an inflection point as that changed or was it insulated enough? So much more insulated than anyone from outside can imagine. I get a lot of like, how did you work for both administrations? It must have been this sort of cliff that you dropped off of. And and the answer is that picture an institution in your mind and like all that that entails, the sort of like hindbound, slow, deliberate, protected, sort of armored. And that's the more than any other part of the civil rights division, the voting section is like the most institution-y place that I have ever been. And, you know, that involved like very careful timekeeping and making sure that like you were precisely on time for work, not not 9.05, but 9 o'clock every morning, which was like not the best fit for me as someone who's late for everything. That meant that like during the Obama administration, I often felt that DOJ was moving too slowly on a lot of things that I cared about. One of the reasons I'm so glad I was there. And one of the reasons that I'm not there now, the pace was was too slow, even in good times. The flip side of that is that there was enough insulation that you could sort of continue trucking on with a lot of the work the section did, which was not very politicized, work 
around trying to change the method of election of a school board in somewhere in the rural South or cases that had to do with like the way voter registration databases are kept or doing voter registration at the DMV. Some of these things that are like, even in this most politicized moment of voting policy, we can think of things that are a lot less politicized, but still had like a really high impact. And so a lot of that sort of just kept on trucking it was a sort of slow pace of work under both administrations and also like the same institutional considerations that led it to be slow really did sort of protect it in a lot of ways. The folks at DOJ at the beginning of the Trump administration, they came from, in many cases, from sort of Mike Pence's orbit in Indiana of lawyers who were Republicans, who were conservative people, but basically sort of believed in the continuity of institutions. And I think that set a lot of the tone for for a lot of what you saw out of DOJ until the very end. The very end seems like it was a little different with attempts to change the attorney general, to change the results of the national election, and then subsequently sort of this weaponization argument and kind of frontal attacks on national law enforcement, basically. Yeah, yeah. Any re- Any reflections about what's going on now? I'm going to go back to Wisconsin for a minute. There was always an undercurrent paying close attention to Midwestern politics of like an anti-elite resentment that in many cases, like that transcends racial boundaries. It transcends geography. There is a sense among a lot of people in this country that elites are not serving them well. And they have that sense because it's often true. There's a tendency among elites to sort of think of the current moment, like Donald Trump caused everyone to lose their minds. And like, no, Donald Trump was channeling the resentment. The fact that he's a jerk to everyone is his selling point. Like he was channeling the resentment of a bunch of people who feel like people like me have not served them well while they're in power. He channeled a right wing version of that. There's also a version of that on the left that's like equally important to pay attention to. We do ourselves a disservice if we see this as a sharp new phenomenon rather than a long simmering problem with the way that we are actually delivering service to people. And frankly, the way in which we are not making a lot of people in this country feel like they're part of a community. Say a word or two about Center for Secure and Modern Elections, which I became aware of during this podcast and uh, have some sense of, but tell me about it. And your, and your role and time there. Yep. CSME is a, a campaign that builds, funds, and executes pro-voter program in states primarily focused on fixing voter registration and making voter registration more secure and efficient with a particular focus on automatic voter registration. My time at CSME very much shaped how we founded Institute for Responsive Government. Institute for Responsive Government is a sort of a, a joint founding of CSME and Center for Tech and Civic Life, which works closely with election officials on implementation and make sure that government officials have what they need to sort of provide good public service. CSME did the policy side. So CSME would work in in legislatures and in states to pass policies like automatic voter registration that that are sort of true win-wins of policy world. Us policy people have to present a series of trade-offs and then like say, okay, these trade-offs are actually worth the gain we get from a policy. 
automatic voter registration is this beautiful win-win. So if you think that like voter fraud is a serious problem, you want to move more voter registration to the point in American society where we do the most robust identity verification, which is the DMV. I just moved from DC to Illinois, which I mentioned. I had to go to the office. I had to bring my passport and I had to bring sort of other documents that prove conclusively where I lived and my citizenship. I mean, didn't we do that motor voter thing in the early nineties and isn't that taken care of? Yeah. So I love motor voter. I love the national voter registration act. I spent actually most of my time at DOJ. I personally spent enforcing the national voter registration act. I can probably still quote section five by heart. That's the part that establishes motor voter. It was an unbelievably important first step. You had DMVs, which are not doing anything before that for the most part, now having to provide, this is the key, a non-duplicative opportunity to register to vote. So like after Motor Voter, if I went into the DMV, if they asked me my address as part of the licensing transaction, they couldn't make me fill out a whole new form with all of that information. And that led to a huge uptick in voter registrations. Um, but it had a limit. It had people had to opt in. You still had to do extra work at the DMV. Even if they knew you were eligible, you still had to do that extra work. And frankly, as most policies do, it lived or died in states on the altar of implementation. So states that really wanted to do this well in a technologically advanced, efficient, secure way were doing that. A lot of states were sort of saddling DMV administrators with extra verbal processes or sort of a bunch of extra paper that that they didn't really need to do. And in terms of impact, this is where policy meets the road. We have to look at what the impact was. They were catching about, in a well-designed system, 10 to 20 percent of eligible voters walking through the doors of that DMV. That's amazing. That's a huge step up from 0%. And there's still a lot of room to go to get to 100%, which is sort of why the next generation of voter registration policies like automatic voter registration helped sort of achieve that impact, help make sure we're actually registering a bunch of voters. And in many cases, does that in a way that makes DMV clerks' jobs easier. They don't have to have a bunch of conversations about this. They don't have to make people fill out an extra form. In summary... Motor voter, huge first step, incredibly important. 30 years after the passage of the NVRA, the fact that we're still trying to get implementation right, it should be a sign that like we need something else. We need to tweak that policy a little bit for it to sort of achieve the impact we need it to. So you've kind of alluded to the founding of Institute for Responsive Government. Help me understand why that happens, what your role was in it. What's the founding story there and and what are you up to? So the founding story is, um, you know, that we at CSME, I led a team of some of the best sort of lawyers and policy minds I have ever had the privilege of working with who did a fantastic job of sort of crafting policy around particularly automatic voter registration, improving vote by mail processes, um, who went through a disruptive event that I think the U.S. election system will never see the likes of, which was the pandemic, forcing election administrators to create a whole new program out of whole cloth in order to sort of serve their voters. And after that, it became clear that there was a need for a policy shop with a public face. So it became clear that there was a need for someone not only to be doing policy that that was 
married with organizing and married with sort of state by state local level intelligence that was married with implementation. So policy that that starts with asking what are the government systems that exist now? What is the impact we need? And how do we precisely change these government systems in ways that make public officials' lives easier and more efficient and also achieve the impact we need to do? And not only did we need to be doing that work, but we needed to be talking about that work. So Institute for Responsive Government is our attempt to join the public conversation about how policy should be made and to say that, hey, policy world, when we are doing this work, we should be doing it in partnership with with state and local leaders, and we should be doing it in partnership with implementers. And if we're not starting there, we're not going to end up in the right place. Our mission is democracy policy, but we define that broadly. So that's not just how elections work. That's not just casting votes securely and efficiently and counting votes securely and efficiently, but also what happens after the election and how government can deliver customer service in ways that sort of loop back and make people want to participate in democracy again. Not only should we be saying, go out and vote, go out and choose not only your senators, your governors, but your judges, um, your county commissioners, your dog catchers. <laughs> not only should you be voting for these people, but you should be interacting with them in a way that makes you feel great about your decision to go out and participate. If we're not doing sort of all of those areas of policy at once, we're not going to strengthen democracy the way we all know it has to be strengthened. It's not easy to start a new organization. It takes a lot of overcoming of inertia, leadership, hiring, fundraising, what, how would you characterize the road so far? What have you learned? We founded this organization after several years of trying not to found this organization. And I think that's important. I couldn't agree with you more that it's a, it's a hard road in the sort of lower profile day-to-day ways that have nothing to do with the sort of mission you're trying to achieve. Let's all try not to do that. I'm a proponent of of people not founding organizations. I was a proponent of me not founding an organization. And I think you sort of have to go through that process to make sure that there really is a gap that you're filling. The 2021 showed me that there was a gap. And we sort of worked hard for that not to be the case. But we really came out of that thinking that there was a policy organization gap in the democracy space. I will say, if you have smart, creative, mission-driven people, it becomes so much easier. I have not gone to bed feeling sad or feeling upset about the sort of like administrative tasks or about the sort of nitty-gritty of founding an organization because everyone that I work with is align-driven, takes ownership of their work. And I know that like if I miss something, if, if something slips my head, it will not, the folks on the team will not miss it. And that's huge. If you'll bear with me for a minute, I like to talk about goals, strategies, and tactics. And if anyone I work with who's in the room right now, they would be groaning because I talk about goals, strategy, and tactics too much. Ultimately, like you should be setting out clear goals for like a campaign or for an organization of what you want to achieve. Like in our case, providing a good government customer service experience and fixing the the persistent inequities in our democracy that we see around the voter registration gap and the participation gap. And you can sort of articulate that in measurable chunks, but ultimately the goal has to be changing something that exists in the world. You have to create strategies to move yourself from point A to point B, and then you deploy tactics as part of those strategies, as part of the strategic choices. And I think where like a lot of organizations trip up is they people start organizations 
in service of tactics rather than in service of goals. So I am a lawyer who firmly believes there should be very few like legal organizations that stand on their own. Law is a tactic that's in service of achieving goals. And if you are deploying law for the sake of law, if you're filing lawsuits for the sake of filing lawsuits, you are doing it wrong. Of course, there should be law firms and they should be brought in tactically as part of a strategy to achieve things. There should be legal organizations and they should be brought in tactically as a strategy to achieve things. Communications is a tactic. Bipartisanship is a tactic. All of these things that I think people found organizations around are actually sort of tactics in service of larger goals. You mentioned partisanship. One of the challenges about anyone tackling good government right now, especially in voting, is, but in so many things, is it gets tangled up in the partisan wars around that subject. Like just reading in your website earlier, you talk about the states in different tiers in terms of how they're dealing with voting laws. Some of them trying to be more open to voting and some of them being more close to voting. And it is impossible for anybody who's pays attention to politics right now, not to associate that to a pretty big degree, not a complete degree, with the two parties and their incentives and their beliefs and their values and their constituencies. So how have you navigated and how do you intend to navigate the partisan question while going for the goals that you're enunciating? Yeah. So, so first of all, I recognize you didn't ask me for validation, but like you're exactly right. This is the most partisan time where I have ever seen democracy policy situated in my entire career. There are still lanes where that's less true. So like you can see this in sort of the, the anti-voter bills that are being introduced in state legislatures around the country. And you can take a look at our election policy progress reports for more of what we think is sort of what makes a good bill and what makes a bad bill. The bad bills have a lot to do with mail voting. As, as you saw in 2020, President Trump made mail voting the sort of highlight of his anger and his ranting and his sort of disinformation to the extent that you have state legislators trying to introduce bills to keep up with the calls of their angry constituents. Those have more to do with mail voting than, for example, voter registration, where we work a lot and where there's a huge amount of work to do in both blue states and red states. One of the things I like about the goals we have set for ourselves in sort of fixing voter registration is that like California does a horrible job of this. New York does a horrible job of this. Texas does a horrible job too. The map in terms of like where are the targets where you need to fix to fix voter registration are not the partisan map that you might be used to looking at. And you have a lot of folks in those states, frankly, that pay a lot of lip service to democracy who are not interested in putting sort of in the hard work of making sure that the California voter rolls accurately reflect the California electorate. I find it really useful in sort of trying to take the temperature down of these conversations to actually be like very explicit about goals. And this is sort of counterintuitive. I think partisans of both sides often get too attached to like ideas. We we are liberals, so we don't support voter ID, for example. And then someone says, I am a conservative, so I s support voter ID. And then you get into a fight about this idea called voter ID without anyone like zeroing in on what exactly the impact is. In fact, every state in the country has a voter ID law. Every state does something to ensure that the person voting is who they say they are. And there's a spectrum of policies along that that can exclude people sometimes, and that's bad. 
or that can efficiently allow people to show their identity and cast a ballot. And that's good. And these are not necessarily tied with sort of the partisan valence of this idea that we have in our head. And if we said, like, my goal is to ensure that people, in fact, are who they say they are when they vote, and that once they prove they are who they say they are, they can vote quickly and efficiently. And actually, that's like a goal that like folks on both sides of the voter ID debate can get behind. And the more I think we can focus on goals rather than ideas, the more progress there is to be made. The Oklahoma legislature just passed this year with our support, a bill that was, it was nearly unanimous. It, it lost one vote in one chamber. It improves the voter registration system at the DMV in Oklahoma so that Oklahoma will automatically filter out non-citizens from the process and streamline the process for confirmed citizens. This means that Oklahoma now has a better voter registration system than California does. That, as you can imagine, is not a place that is sort of necessarily like instinctively right now designed to sort of come together in a bipartisan way to create policies that work. I think there's a lot of room here, and I think there's actually more room than a lot of people give it credit for. If you had to characterize what your plan is to navigate this, how would you do so? Yeah, you navigate it with like strong local relationships. We need to support local election administrators in running accessible, secure elections. Everyone knows this. Local election administrators are the ones who open polling places, hire poll workers, buy voting machines, um, count the ballots quickly or less quickly. They're being equipped to do their job will make or break an election. And that's the case every year, but especially since 2020. They don't have the adequate resources to do that. Local election officials are, I, I don't have hard data on this, but like vast, vast, vast majority are Republicans because they sit at the county city level and the vast majority of counties and cities in the United States are Republican. In almost every state, most county clerks are going to be Republicans, which means our number one goal is actually to be in service of these predominantly Republican public officials in doing their job. And that's an example of how like the, the strategy for sort of bipartisanship, you, you don't really need to actually deploy bipartisanship qua bipartisanship, you don't do it because you have some lofty goal of like people coming together across the aisle. You do it because it's required to get done what you need to get done. I could apply that same sort of rubric to like some of our other goals, but but it really is sort of all about wanting public officials to have what they need to do what they want to do in the first place. The bipartisanship fills itself in at that point. I talked to a fellow on the podcast that number of years ago, and I'm drawing a blank on his name at the moment, but he was one of the guys who helped form ERIC, which I'm certain you're aware of is this big voter registration database that helps states get get the lists right, basically. I saw that some states have been leaving that system, which is kind of a, a bad development. What's your interaction with that entity and how are things going and can this be repaired? Yeah, there's a sort of outside observer in the in the voting and election administration sector. I, I I can't imagine anything that that is more akin to shooting yourself in the foot than than leaving Eric. Eric is the best voter fraud fighting mechanism we have, and it's the best way to ensure that like folks are sort of generally enfranchised when they move that we have. And there was, I think, a a misapprehension among folks on both sides of the aisle that Eric was a compromise. So that you had sort of voter list maintenance on one side of the aisle for Republicans, and then you had the mailings to unregistered eligible voters 
on the other side going for the Democrats, quote. And you see this kind of like compromise language in all sorts of things. You see it when you're talking about the National Voter Registration Act, when you're putting list maintenance on one side of the scale and new registrations on the other side of the scale. And it's actually just an inaccurate way to look at this. I don't believe that that sort of proactive mailings to voters, from what I've seen, have a huge impact. It's good to send those mailers. It's good to let folks know there's easy ways to register to vote. Generally, providing folks more ways to choose to opt in to voter registration doesn't work because it was pretty easy for them to opt in to voter registration already if that's what they wanted to do. What Eric did, crucially, is in an extremely cost-effective way for public administrators, it allowed them to make sure that the voter rolls were accurate. On the left, there's a tendency to see sort of voter list accuracy as the enemy, which is which is completely backwards in my mind. And on the right, there's a sort of tendency to see this as only rem- all the right wants to do is like take people off the rolls. They zero in as their idea that they want to sort of move towards here. Whereas actually what's happening with Eric is that both are happening at the same time. At the same time as you get people off the rolls who are at the wrong address, you are re-registering them if you do this sort of work right at the new address. When I move across town in Chicago, let's say, a well-designed list maintenance process should not only be cleaning up the rolls by removing me from my old address, but adding me at my new address so I get mailings, so that I get door knocks, and so that I know where my new polling place is so that I can go and vote. Eric also added a sort of cross-state element to that, so it allowed Wisconsin and Illinois, for example, to share information about people moving from Kenosha to Chicago or from Chicago to Kenosha. And that's incredibly important because we don't have many other mechanisms for telling when people move between states. There's a sort of very clunky National Voter Registration Act process. But if we have eight states, some of them very large, leaving, is it bound for disintegration? No. Frankly, as long as like more than one state is in Eric, Eric serves a value and it does so, so cost effectively, so efficiently. I don't think there's much of a critical mass below which Eric becomes useless. For the states that have left, though, they don't have a good replacement. So for a state that has left Eric currently, there is nothing else that can tell them when the people in their state move to another state. And for folks who at least sort of say that they care about fighting voter fraud, It is, to me, an inexplicable decision. Do you see any signs that the states that have left are building something to replace it, that they're more more willing to trust, or is it just going by the wayside? I don't know yet. I hope so. In many of these states, there's actually a, a requirement to perform proper list maintenance for folks who move between states. So if not Eric, I think administrators who are following the law are then going to say, what do we do now? And I don't know if the answer is going to be going back to Eric. I don't know if the answer is going to be creating something similar that can give them that data. Like many things, the, the trick is going to be doing so in a way that maximizes accuracy and completeness at the same time. Is there anything that you, as the Institute for Responsive Government, are like, do you have a program or a campaign or something aimed at that? Or is that more like you watch it and you have commentary about it? We work on anything related to efficient, secure processes that sort of make voter registration work. And so this is, of course, sort of core to our program area. I don't have anything to sort of talk about right now that that we're doing related to that, but it is a core area of concern and we are sort of keeping a close eye on it. What is something that you're working on that that is taking a lot of your energy that you're proud of that you'd like to highlight? 
So yesterday, uh, a bill was introduced in Michigan to add Michigan to the growing list of states that that has secure automatic voter registration. This is sort of what we consider to be the gold standard of automatic voter registration, where it it sort of maximizes protections by only automatically registering citizens and folks who sort of go through that DMV process and demonstrate that they are in fact an eligible voter. And then for those eligible voters makes the process as seamless and automatic as possible by just transmitting their information to election officials who double checks their eligibility, provides an opportunity to opt out of voter registration if they want to. And if they don't opt out, adds them to the rolls. This is a form of automatic voter edge that tends to be between 95 and 99 plus percent effective at getting folks walking through the door at the DMV registered or getting their records updated. I think I mentioned to you before what we see under a traditional motor voter process is more in the sort of 10s to 20s. I'm so excited about this policy. It's a great example of what happens when organizers, frankly, are the ones who sort of get to invent the policy. In in Oregon, about eight years ago, organizers on the ground sort of invented this streamlined, clear, secure process for adding voters to the rolls. The more lawyerly reinterpretations of the policies later on, like California did a year after that, have been much less effective and caused some some errors because they sort of like, frankly, I think we're overthinking things. I love this policy because it's a win-win, because it's simple, and because it's effective at its stated goal, which is keeping the election process secure and, and making sure that as many eligible voters are registered as possible. I think Michigan's going to join that group this year. Folks like Promote the Vote, who helped to pass two of the best pro-voter ballot initiatives I've ever seen in the country, are taking the lead on this in state. And I'm really excited about that. And that's a sort of well-trodden path at this point. Minnesota and New Mexico both passed huge omnibus pro-voter policy bills earlier this year that, that we worked on that included secure AVR along with sort of other improvements to the election system. So, so we're really excited to see Michigan join that crew hopefully later this year. How many states have that? So it depends on your sort of definition, but about nine um, states currently have or somewhere in the implementation process. And then another, again, sort of depending on how, where you put these definitions, another 15-ish have what we call a partially automatic system. So this is like states moving in the right direction, but still have somewhere to go to get to the gold standard. Should there be and can there be a national law that mandates that to states? I like to be careful about national laws. I think generally with this work, it's worth letting states be a little bit of a laboratory at first. But I think at this point, you know, at least the sort of broad strokes of we should ensure that only eligible voters are voting and we should make it as automatic and streamlined as possible for those eligible voters to get registered. I think there could be space for a national law in this. Automatic voter registration was a part of some of the Democratic bills in the U.S. House. They did not quite get that policy right, but we might reach a point at which it sort of makes sense to require that nationally as we gain confidence that this policy sort of works everywhere. If you had to take a swing at how are we doing across the states in moving election-related policy in the right direction versus the wrong direction, my sense is that both are going on. How are we on balance these days? I like to be the good news voice in the room around this stuff. So I think we hear a lot about the bad things and the bad things are real. And there are folks litigating some really, really bad bills in places like Texas 
You'll see in responsive government's election policy reports that there are some states getting D's and F's on pro-voter policy for the last couple of years. There are more states getting A's and B's than you might think, and a wider variety of, of, of states politically that are getting A's and B's that you might think. I mentioned that Minnesota and New Mexico this year passed two of the best omnibus pro-voter policies I've ever seen. Not only did both add secure automatic voter registration, they restored rights to returning citizens. They both made improvements to their state's vote-by-mail system. They both made sure that election administrators had what they needed to sort of provide these gold standard elections. Those are a caliber of policymaking in the states that you weren't seeing a few years ago. And then South Carolina, after 2020, allowed for more early voting. That was a way that folks on the right who were suspicious of mail balloting and folks on the left that wanted to expand voter access were able to come together on more opportunities for in-person voting. I mentioned that the state of Oklahoma nearly unanimously passed some pretty significant improvements to their voter registration system that made it more secure and more accessible at the same time. There is plenty of bad news. Texas passed a bill that said that the most populous counties in the state don't have sovereignty over their own election systems the way that other counties in the states do. That's indefensible. I don't, also don't want to sort of drown out the bad news, but there is a lot of good news right now. And a lot of work left to do in blue states whose legislatures are saying we want to protect voting rights. So California, I'm looking at you. Let's see some victories there in the next few years. It's hard not to think about the next presidential election, when you're thinking about voting, when you have former president running on a I was cheated platform of my win last time, even though he wasn't, how do you operate in an environment where that is the biggest headline and and uh, kind of the inevitable water you're swimming in? <laughs> Nothing else is going to compete with that in the news cycle. That's bad. I think there's a sort of flip side of this where like, I don't necessarily find that the more people that talk about democracy policy generally, the better things get. In fact, often it's just the opposite. And so like, I think there's a lot of room to do really good, impactful work behind the scenes. This is what like state-based organizers, state-based policymakers have been good at for, for my entire career is like, well, the national conversation is screaming about A, they're accomplishing B on the ground because they have to accomplish something because that's their jobs. And I hope that can still continue to happen. I hope that progressives not only counter the anti-democratic messaging that Donald Trump almost certainly will be shouting throughout the next year, but that at the same time, sell a vision of a government that takes care of people, sell a vision of, of community and sell a vision that, that all sorts of people want to be a part of. I consider that to be an integral part of democracy policy. I hope both parties are selling a vision of government that sort of takes care of people the way we expect government to take care of us. The more everyone can get back to that, the more some of this, frankly, anxiety that's causing both sides to sort of retreat to their corners can maybe be overcome. I'm, I'm struggling on optimism here, but I, I do feel it. <laughs> Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? What I want to get more people asking me is, how does democracy policy work outside of election month? And what I would answer to that is like, 
in Medicaid, we have a program where the government is providing people health care. So first of all, we should be automatically registering confirmed citizens through the Medicaid process. That's a no-brainer. That helps get folks who are some of the least enfranchised in our society in every sense of that word to become enfranchised. But second of all, there's room to improve that process so that like the process of actually getting your child health care is one that you feel is positive. And the government's spending a lot of money on getting people health care. And if people come out of that thinking that their time was wasted or that like, you know, basic technology that they use at their bank was not being used as part of the system to give them the benefits that their taxes pay into, we are failing as a government. When I talk about why we founded Responsive Government, one of the guiding text to me was a book by Jamila Michener called Fragmented Democracy, which I can't recommend more highly. Um, but it's about like real people's experience of the implementation um, of programs like Medicaid. And she does some research and finds that that recipients of Medicaid are less likely to be registered to vote than, than non-Medicaid recipients. And it's like, the number of forms you end up having to fill out to be able to take your kid to the doctor, and then I hand you another form and say, hey, fill this out, and then you can participate civically, is not the way to handle that interaction. Obviously, Medicaid is a sort of easy example of this. As we've started looking at voter registration at the DMV, it's really fun to watch the ways that which DMV administrators are working to improve the technology and improve their customer service experience at the DMV. There's been some real strides in that in the last few years, actually, that I think other areas of, of government could copy. I think we're on the cusp of some real innovation on how people file their taxes and also get money back from the government. Like when the government owes you money and is going to be sending you a check, that should be a process that's easy. All of these mechanisms, every touch point we have, every customer service point that we have with our government should be a positive one. Over the years, I, I, I hope we're going to be sort of working to improve that. I, I couldn't agree more. And it, it's such a basic design problem that you ought to be able to get both sides to agree on that whatever is in place at least ought to be easy and serve people well, right? And you can fight about what the policy is or what the law is, but if you're interacting with your government, it should not suck. Yep, I, yep. that's exactly right. And you'll note that like, that doesn't have a lot of partisan valence to that necessarily. You hear a lot of Republicans running on government should run like a business. You have a lot of like Democrats. Right, right. Right. There's no advantage to these processes being unpleasant. Yeah. Yep. 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 And there's, you know, like that's a great example of where like realistically there are going to be cues, there are going to be lines around immigration, but the actual like process of applying and how we get information about that process, like that should be a good experience. Agreed. Great to talk to you, Sam. Uh, is there anything else you want to say? I just want to say, like, I, you know, the I am inspired every day by the state and local-based organizers and the state and local-based government and public officials that I work with, and that the great privilege I have is getting to see public servants, both inside and outside of government, make things better for their communities and make things better for their neighbors. I will be thrilled at my job as long as I still get to sort of work with those people and get to interact with them. And I am constantly inspired by them. And so 
thank you to them that, that only people that make this work possible. Awesome. That was Sam. He is at responsivegovernning.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.